and welcome back to the Medical Republic podcast. I'm Francine Crimmins. And we're doing another roundup of all the latest that's been happening with COVID with our brilliant COVID-19 blogger, Bianca Nogrady. Welcome back to the program. Thanks so much, Francine. It's nice to be here. We've just had another fortnight of things looking not too great down in Victoria. If you don't mind just starting by recapping what's the latest in that situation. Yeah, so unfortunately, Victoria had another record day or either record-breaking or nearly record-breaking day of new cases. They had 725 new cases reported today, um, including 15 more deaths. Um, And unfortunately, that included a man in his 30s, which is kind of shocking given that, um, you know, we have been operating on the idea that this does disproportionately um, cause death amongst a much older population, and so to have somebody so young die is um, is particularly shocking. And I guess a reminder to all that no one is safe or immune from this particular virus. Um, and obviously, there's been stage four restrictions now enacted in metropolitan Melbourne and uh, in um, and stage three in regional Victoria. So it's it's pretty drastic. But as um, the premier said at the press conference the other day, that. The reason that they have gone for these harder lockdowns is that um, the data suggested if they'd stayed at stage three restrictions, we would be seeing another six months of several hundred cases every day before uh, the pandemic, before it sort of started to reduce. And that just wasn't tolerable, especially given the death rates. So um, it really did require a very, um, a much more kind of hard tack. And, you know, to their credit, they've taken that. Um, Having said that, there's also you know, a number of issues with people who've been diagnosed as being positive with the virus and who are not self-isolating. So Victoria has now implemented um, this door knocking. So anybody who registers, who, who, who has a test and tests positive is actually now visited at home um, by Australian Defence Force personnel and Victorian Health Department person, uh, personnel, um, partly to check that they are at home because it was discovered uh, last week that about one in four people who were door knocked were found not to be at home despite actually being positive for the virus. Um, but it's also to check that people have everything they need and, uh, you know, people have had, obviously have needed groceries picked up or scripts, uh, prescriptions filled. So, you know, there's some, some care that's going on in there as well. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the state's obviously trying to keep some things moving, so they've introduced the, um, uh, an allowance for people who qualify as permitted workers, which uh, I'm pretty sure includes, includes healthcare workers. They can now access childcare um, as long as they can demonstrate that they can't get someone to care for their child at home. Uh, and today we've also now got a freeze on all public and private elective surgery in regional Victoria, so across the whole state. Um, and that excludes what's known as Category 1 surgery. So that's surgery that's, you know, pretend, you know I guess the person's going to end up in the emergency department if they don't have this surgery uh, and some urgent Category 2 surgery. But generally speaking, elective surgery is now off the board. So, um, yeah, it's a pretty grim time in Victoria now, I think, uh, and certainly in other states, particularly New South Wales, where we're seeing a steady tick of kind of between 10 and 20 case, new cases a day. Obviously, there's a lot of concern that... Um, that that might be heading down the same path of community transmission as Victoria. So, yeah, it's um, it's it's a, a nail-biting time for Australia, having done so well early on. But I think, you know, there was always going to be a second wave. I, I don't think there was any question in the absence of a vaccine that we, were, we weren't going to see this. And so that sort of sense of horrible inevitability, really. 
I was going to ask you about that, Bianca. We're really seeing two distinct situations play out when you compare Victoria and New South Wales. And as you said, New South Wales has had, uh, I think, almost a month now of this uh, pattern where we have between 8 and 20 cases every day, some linked to known clusters, some that are community transmission. And it seems like for a very long time, we've been on the edge of our seat waiting to see if New South Wales becomes as affected as Victoria has. And it just hasn't seemed to happen yet. Is there any speculation that you've seen online or between experts at the moment of why the situations in both states is playing out so differently? Look, I I actually don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I think um, it could be dumb luck, um, but I suspect there's perhaps an element of luck, but there's also an element of, you know, there are some differences. For example, I think aged care constitutes a huge number of the cases of COVID-19 that have um, come through in this second wave in Victoria. So, um, and I don't know much about how the aged care system is structured differently in, a, in New South Wales compared to Victoria, but certainly the outbreaks in aged care um, particularly the uh, privately owned aged care in Victoria seems to be a major, major contributor to this outbreak. Um, I mean, there were obviously questions raised about hotel, the staffing of hotel quarantine and how that's been managed. Um, but, you know, other than that, I, I don't know. I mean, Victoria was um, actually kind of went in harder in the first wave of this pandemic. They, they did go in harder than some of the other states with their restrictions. They held those restrictions for longer. Uh, so, I, you know, it, it's difficult to, to really to know whether, you know, how much of this is something that could have been prevented and how much of it is just that this is just how this virus will play out. And certainly, you know, there's a real, I think there's a, a definitely a danger of, um, of New South Wales or any other state counting its chickens and, and thanking its lucky stars at this point and, and thinking that we've dodged a bullet. Um, because I think, you know, certainly the evidence from what how the Spanish flu played out was that, you know, this there is numerous waves. I mean, I think in Australia there were three distinct waves of the Spanish flu. Um, and in the absence of a vaccine, there's there's no reason to think that that's not going to uh, to happen again. Um, so, yeah, it's I, I'm sure there are people analysing the heck out of this. And certainly, as, uh, you know, as the premier, Victorian premier said last week, you know, they're now, um, they've got a crack team of, of epidemiologists and public health experts and, um, you know, statisticians who have been really pouring over the data from Victoria, trying to work out where this transmission is happening and how it's happening. Um, and therefore, you know, looking at what measures are going to be most effective to, to shut that down. And I, I would hope and I would assume that the whatever they learn from that will be shared with the other states. So hopefully, you know, when the, the second wave does hit in other parts of Australia, hopefully it's not as, um, as severe as what Victoria is going through. And in terms of the case numbers that we're seeing in Victoria, I know that a lot of health professionals have been quite concerned about shortages that can and already are happening in some healthcare institutions when healthcare workers test positive to the virus. You reported recently a study that was showing the median time, is that correct, from when you first test positive and how long it is before you'll return two negative tests? Yeah, and look, this is interesting because, I mean, the practice is this idea of two weeks of isolation, that you have a positive test and then, um, uh, or you're, sorry, you're in quarantine and, you you know, you isolate for two weeks. But, you know, we've had people who are, and I, I don't actually know what the protocol is. I don't know whether you have to then test two negative, pos- uh, two negative tests to then, 
uh, not be in quarantine or isolation. I don't know how that plays out, but this particular study, it was just 11 healthcare workers at a single institution in Australia, um, but they found the median time from the first positive SARS test to the second of two negative tests, the median time was 32 and a half days. The longest time was 53 days. So this virus lingers for a long, long time. And I know we've also covered previously some evidence suggesting that um, it's possible to have negative tests and then actually have the virus resurface. So there's evidence that it, it kind of stays, you know, it, it remains latent in the body. And, and we know that it's you know, we know that it's shed faecally. We know that it's obviously in nasopharyngeal cavities. We know that it's in semen. We know that, you know, I mean, it's, I, I, I mean, I'm presuming it's in the urinary tract. I haven't, I can't recall seeing that. But, I mean, this virus gets everywhere. And so, I, you know, there is a worry that even two negative, consecutive negative um, SARS tests isn't necessarily going to be enough to rule out this virus and, and to actually show that someone's well and truly clear of it. So, I mean, with these cases, it may be that that, you know, that 53 days, they may have tested negative maybe once or twice in that time, but then we're still getting positive tests. So it's, you know, this, this idea of this persistent positivity, um, you know, it, this seems to be the norm with COVID-19. This is not a temporary thing where you kind of you get it and then you clear it within a few weeks this this sucker really hangs around and moving on to what's happening in the study space of treatments and or potential treatments I should say I know that a couple of weeks ago dexamethasone the steroid was looking uh, a little bit promising but what's happened in the last week so a couple of things so the um, the Australasian COVID-19 trial the ASCOT trial has uh, made the decision to drop both hydroxychloroquine and uh, lupinavir, ritonavir from its uh, treatment arms. So these were drugs that initially um, there was some speculation. Obviously, hydroxychloroquine is a grand and sweeping saga that most people are probably familiar with now. So it's no surprise that that's been dropped since the um, the discovery trial in the UK. Sorry, recovery trial in the UK uh, showed that it basically did bugger all. Um, so lupinavir, ritonavir, two antivirals, again, they were being examined, but um, uh, the, the evidence from overseas trials suggests that there's no benefit. So ASCOT has now dropped both of those from its treatment arms, um, but they have added convalescent plasma. Um, they've added a treatment arm for convalescent plasma. So the ASCOT trial is actually just getting underway. Um, so they're still in the process of recruiting people. And I imagine that now that the things in Victoria have increased, um, that will open up a, a more patients, I guess, to be enrolled in the trial. Um, and they're actually asking people who have recovered from COVID-19 to donate plasma so that they can have a treatment arm for convalescent plasma. Um, but just on the dexamethasone question, um, this is kind of an interesting um, problem that is may or may not present in kind of tropical areas um, and, and includes Australia, and that's strongyloides hyperinfection. So strongyloides or strongyloidiasis is actually um, caused by a nematode. And um, it's endemic in tropical and subtropical regions around the world. And people can have this infection. So it's, it's present in Australia and particularly around the Northern Territory, Northern Queensland. Um, it's a chronic infection that's largely asymptomatic. So people can have this for very, very long periods of time. I think there might be some mild dermatological manifestations, but very, very mild. But if people with this with this um, infection are treated with any kind of corticosteroids or immunosuppressive agents, 
it can but it just leads to this incredible blowout this kind of severe hyperinfection which is often um, often fatal and so I remember hearing about this years ago at I think it was a dermatology conference and, and they were saying you've just got to be careful if you're giving steroids to anybody who might be in a high-risk category anyone who lives in tropical regions has, has lived in tropical regions who may have some of these dermatological manifestations you've got to consider the possibilities that they may have this kind of chronic strongyloides infection and so um, this particular paper in JAMA um, I was just raising this prospect and, and warning about it and saying that if you do have patients um, who have COVID-19, who you're considering for dexamethasone treatment um, and who might be at moderate to high risk of strongyloides infection, that um, it's worth considering uh, treating them presumptively with ivermectin, which is the standard treatment, as I understand, for strongyloides, because the consequences of giving something like dexamethasone to somebody with strongyloides uh, chronic strongyloides infection could be fatal. So it's one of those highly unlikely that you'd come across it, but certainly if we did have another surge of cases in, you know, in the Northern Territory, Northern Queensland, um, I don't know about WA, whether, there's, what, whether it's kind of endemic around there, but it's definitely something to keep in mind. Is there any way that you can tell if someone would be susceptible to a strongyloides hyperinfection? I mean, I would imagine that uh, rheumatologists and dermatologists use corticosteroids they definitely do in patients in uh, tropical areas and I haven't really heard of a um, screening process to nut out that risk factor yeah I, I don't know I don't know it's um yeah that's something I, I imagine doctors who work in those areas will probably be a lot more familiar with this and and familiar with the warning signs but um but no I don't know whether um whether there's any way of predicting who's likely to kind of experience hyperinfection but I think the treatment itself namely ivermectin is um, I, I don't know that that's a, a difficult treatment so it's possibly one of those things where people just use it you know prophylactically if they have to treat a patient with steroids but yeah I don't know. And looking at the COVID-19 cases in Australia in First Nations individuals it seems to be at a significantly lower rate than what we've seen in non-Indigenous Australians. Uh, what's the data showing Bianca? Well, this is one of the few really good news stories to come out of this pandemic, um, which is that, you know, First Nations communities and First Nations people in Australia um, have, have just done so much better in this pandemic than non-Indigenous Australians. So there's so far, um, and obviously I don't know if there's any new data out of Victoria, but only 60 COVID-19 cases in Australia have occurred in First Nations individuals. So it basically that represented about um, 0.7% of COVID-19 cases altogether, well, but First Nations people make up around 3% of the population and no First Nations people have ended up in intensive care or died from the disease. And they, uh, the authors of this uh, letter in The Lancet really talked about the fact that um, there were a lot of lessons learned from the 2009 H1N1 influenza epidemic, which um, disproportionately impacted, um, affected Indigenous communities and, and badly. And so since then, there's been um, a lot of work that's gone into um, putting in place uh, sister, sort of, I guess, First Nations-led response, so community-led response um, in Indigenous communities to the pandemic. So there was, you know, a, a huge amount of testing and contact tracing. There was a lot of effort that was put into, made, you know, making sure there was adequate PPE, um, and also particularly the um, the use of social media and general communication strategy 
was was really tailored to Indigenous communities. It was extensive. It was, um, you, you know, in a way, you know, those communities did a much much better job in some ways than than was done um, in in kind of non Indigenous settings. And and as the author said, I mean, this has really demonstrated how effective and cost effective it has been to actually give the power and capacity to Indigenous leaders to manage health in, well, in any situation. But I think, you know, this pandemic has, I think, really shown that that approach works that we should have been doing it a long, long time ago. So it's it's a great bit of good news and, um, you know, really, really hope that kind of government health agencies actually take that on board and, um, you know, and, and yeah, <laughs> kind of get out of the way, really. It's definitely good to finish on a more positive note uh, with this pandemic update. Thank you so much, Bianca. Thanks very much, Rosie. You've been listening to the Medical Republic podcast. Make sure you subscribe to us either on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. I'm Francine Crimmins and you can contact me with any tips or feedback at francine at medicalrepublic.com.au where I'm always active on Twitter as well. Catch you next time.